God, we thank you that you are a good God and you're sovereign over all things. We praise you for that. We thank you for your word and your son, Jesus. Um, we know that he wasn't actually born on December 25th or that, that that's just our best guess, but it is a precious time of year to reflect on the fact that our God humbled himself, became a man, was born to a virgin, and uh, lived and died and rose from the dead. And we thank you for those things. And I pray that we would marvel at them, that even though these are things as believers that are central to what we believe and what we profess, and therefore they are sort of commonplace in our mind, I pray that we would still be filled with a sense of wonder that this is our God. And uh, I pray as we look at the text of Mark this morning, that it would cause us to love you and trust you more. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're in Mark chapter 9. We've been looking at the transfiguration. And uh, let's read here. I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus said to them, Truly, true, or just truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. If you were here last week or you were listening last week, then uh, you heard me assert that I think Jesus is only referencing what is immediately going to happen in the verses following, that he's going to be transfigured and that three of his disciples are going to see him in kind of the fullness of his glory. Verse 2, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. As I was looking at this this week, I was like, I wonder what they're talking about. We don't know, but... Are they talking about the fulfillment of prophecy? Are they just talking about, like, how was your week, man? I mean, I'm sure it wasn't that. But, you know, what what was the discussion? Interesting. Okay, verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. All right, so really, let's start in verse 5. Peter makes this comment, and Mark gives us a little bit of a commentary on it, right? So uh, Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Mark tells us, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. You ever had just like word throw up where you're like in a conversation and you don't really know what to say, so things just come out of your mouth? Um, I think Peter is having one of those moments. And I think Mark even tells us that Peter is having one of those moments. He says, for he didn't know what to say. I think it's kind of Mark to include this here. Peter is sometimes displayed for us as this kind of brash, impulsive, not... He doesn't really think. He just kind of like acts. And in some ways, we love Peter for that. But Mark gives us this little commentary, I think, to, to sort of remind us like, hey, Peter is, uh, is just saying things that don't really make sense. But he's terrified. You would be too. Like you would not know what to say either if this was an experience that you had had. This is the kind of thing that any person, if they were present in this moment, would struggle to make sense of what's happening. Uh, But Peter definitely fails to see the significance of the event. Anybody want to take a crack as to why? Or what do you notice that shows that Peter fails to see the significance of what's happening? All right, well, it begins with the very first word, rabbi. 
Uh, Jesus is a rabbi, right? He's a teacher. But what did Peter not too long ago say about Jesus? Jesus says, who do you say that I am? The Son of God, right? So suddenly Peter went from saying, Jesus, we know that you're the Son of God, to sort of demoting him back to rabbi. Um, this, this, I mean, this is a term of kind of like endearment and intimacy, but uh, I think it shows that Peter has sort of kind of lost sight of who he's actually talking to again, right? Remember those old, like, Looney Tunes shows? Well, probably not those of you who were born after the year 2000. But remember when the characters were like, because they, like, didn't know what to say? I think Peter's kind of pulling one of those. So he calls Jesus rabbi. He doesn't call him Messiah or Christ like he just called him. Um, And he's seeing him in these radiant clothes. And Jesus is transfigured but he he reverts back to this word rabbi Um, and then he says it's good that they are there which I don't know what exactly Peter intends by that phrase yes of course like it would be a good experience for them to be there Um, but I think that when you kind of couple that with his comment that like hey let us build some tents here Right? Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Uh, I think it kind of hints that Peter is like, wow, this is a really cool, exclusive experience that I get to have. I'm not eager for it to end. Uh, let's stay up here and hang around. Um, let's not go back to life as usual. So there's a phrase that people sometimes use in Christian circles, the mountaintop experience. Right? Have you heard that before? When I was in like high school, we would always talk about how camp was like this mountaintop experience, and then you'd have to go back home, and it was like the valley, right? Because you'd come down from this kind of spiritual high. And I think there is something to be said about those those uh, particular moments where God gives us like an extra special dispensation of His grace, an extra special experience of his his spirit or his nearness i think those things happen but uh you know for peter he doesn't want to go back to life as usual and i think that we can sometimes be guilty of trying to drag out experience um, spiritual experiences that are special to us that god doesn't intend to last forever and uh, But Peter is like, you know, let's build some tents. Let's just camp out here for a while. This is great, Jesus. Glad, glad that we get to be here. And, and maybe we could even say that an offer to build some semi-permanent shelters uh, is... Re- remember what Jesus said shortly before coming up here. What is the Son of Man going to do? He's going to suffer... And he's going to be rejected by the religious leaders, and he's going to be crucified. And, um, you know, maybe Peter is eager to divert Jesus from where Jesus said this thing was going. Let, let's just hang out here for a little while. Maybe that that tide will pass us by. I don't know. Can you can you tell us what what is the Feast of Booths and what significance Peter might have thought that was happening and maybe wanted to build a booth kind of thing? Yeah, I'm rusty on the Feast of Booths. I know it's one of the feasts, so maybe you can fill us in better than I can. I just know that it was a time when Israel lived in tents, and wasn't it to reflect back on their wandering in the wilderness and God living among them and God's intention to bring them to a permanent place? But maybe you know better than me. I don't, I'm not familiar with it either. Um, But yeah, the the idea was that was one of their festivals where they would go to Jerusalem and live in in booths. and Zechariah is a prop, prophecy about, and I'm assuming Peter would be familiar with it, but Zechariah is prophesying, then all the survivors from the nations that came against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the festival of booths. Um, and they'll say holy to the Lord, and I'm wondering if Peter just thought like that time is, is happening in preparation. So this booths, is the fulfillment of that? I don't know if it's fulfillment or if he's just thinking that's what's going to be done. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's quite possible. I mean, I, I would I would think that, like, the ultimate meaning of the Feast of Booths, right, would be this idea that, like, God tabernacles among his people. 
right? That and and that like we're sojourners. This is no permanent home that we have, but that God, you know, the the, the final fulfillment of that being God Himself will become a man in flesh. Um, but I, I don't know. I I probably should have spent a little bit more time thinking about that. Um, anybody else familiar with the Feast of Booths and want to make the connection more explicit? Well, we're evangelicals, so we don't really care about the Old Testament anyway, right? I'm joking. Joking. It's a joke. Um, I'm actually going to spend... Well, I mean, we're going through Genesis, but I'm going to spend some time talking about how some of this stuff fits together, the way the Old Testament fits together with the New Testament today. Um, futurists would see, like, that's... From what I understand, <coughs> futurists, is that that's, like, the last of the festivals that need to be fulfilled. For some reason, I, I mean, I was going to look up on that question, but again, you have your paradigm when you see those things, so, you know. So, again, you you, you think that maybe this is like a Sinai fulfillment of that, or at least... Well, I don't, I, I, I don't, I would say, again, without me being, spending any time on it, I would say, I don't know that it's fulfillment of it, but Peter thinks that whatever <coughs> prophecy he's expecting yeah. is happening, you know, and so yeah. he's misguided or maybe it is a fulfillment prophecy, but he wants to, to do the thing. Part of me makes me wonder if Peter is even thinking of that. And the reason why is because look at, look at verse uh, 11. I'm just reminded at how uneducated these guys were because... They're like, well, hey, we've heard these scribes and Pharisees talk about, you know, Elijah coming first, but why do they say that? Well, I mean, that would be a pretty obvious one, right? It's the ending of Malachi. I mean, it's the closing of the Old Testament. Um, so, I, I mean, I tend to assume that when Jesus is talking with scribes and Pharisees that they know the Old Testament pretty well. But, but Peter must have, because the Feast of Booths is like something that would have defined his life every year. I mean, the yeah. Jews are all celebrating it. It says, three times a year, all your males, says Deuteronomy, shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booze. And I'm just thinking, since God appeared before him, he's trying to do one of the feasts. Right. So like, yeah. This is, yeah. Interesting. Uh, well, you know, some of the things I said, I... I I admit I'm making some assumptions, right? Like the whole mountaintop experience thing. Did Peter not want to go back to the ministry they were doing? I, who knows? Um, but what we definitely know is what Mark tells us, verse 6. Peter didn't know what to say. He's terrified. Um, and that kind of... Uh, well, before we get to that, um, isn't this kind of interesting? That how did, this, how did the disciples know this is Moses and Elijah? Uh, I, I don't have an answer to that either, but did they walk over and be like, hey, nice to meet you, Peter. I'm Moses. Or was it just like a giveaway because of the beard or something like that? I, maybe they had name tags on. What's that term you taught us about writing? They found out later, and then when they're writing, they, they fill in the thing. Yeah, like the progressive revelation type thing? or No, no, you, like a pre-elliptic or something. You, oh. you, no, that's I don't think I use that. No. no. Um, but I'm honored that you would think I would use no, a phrase like that. Like, <laughs> you did teach us a word like that. But it's where they didn't know at the time, but since this was writing, you know, years later, yeah. they knew because Jesus told right. them after the facts, so and then yeah. they just said that was. Yes, except uh, verse 5, Peter says, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So, I mean, really the only the only answer that I have to this is that, like, how do they know? Is that, like, they just had divine revelation, right? Somehow they just knew this is Moses and Elijah. Um, but uh, I don't know. There's, I mean, this is just a, a very bizarre moment in the life and ministry of Jesus that is kind of, I mean, I don't, we're, we're probably not supposed to understand everything. We're just supposed to understand this is a revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. Um, you were kind of looking up the God question saying, do you have something on it before we move forward? To, to share, there's a lot about the feasts. Yeah. Okay, well, then uh, continuing on here, if you find something that's interesting, feel free to interrupt me. I would love to know a little bit more about that. Um, verses 7 and 8, right? Okay, so they see Jesus in his glory. 
And then God speaks. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. Uh, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So although they cannot see God, they hear him. And one of the things I think that's really interesting about this is that they don't fall down. Uh, maybe that's because they're supposed to have no confusion about what events transpired here. They're supposed to be sort of fully confident in their faculties of perception. But if we go through scripture in different places where God speaks, there's a lot of God speaking and people falling down. Um, it happens to Abraham in Genesis 17, happens to Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel in Leviticus 9. The glory of the Lord appears, they fall down. Numbers 16, Korah's rebellion, uh, the people of Israel fall down. First uh, Kings 18, with Elijah and the prophets of Baal, after God sends his fire, people fall down. You've got David and the elders in First Chronicles 21. David calls for a census. God instead sends a plague. They see this angel. They fall down. You've got Revelation 19, the 24 elders before the throne of God fall down. So it's just kind of interesting that at this point, here is God speaking. Here's a revelation of Christ and his glory. And uh, the disciples don't fall to the ground. I mean, they're terrified, but they're not forced to lay prostrate before him. Um, all right, so then what does God say when he speaks? When God speaks, it's important for man to listen and pay attention. God declares Jesus to be his son. Um, now, Peter already declared Jesus to be the son of God. Uh, and now that declaration is being affirmed by the voice of God himself. And this is a, a unique endorsement. Um because if you think about like some other endorsements uh you have so with like a prophet or an important person in the old testament a lot of times you have some kind of mediator right so if 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 the disciples or the scribes and the pharisees are thinking of jesus as kind of like the new david well how was david appointed king he was appointed king through Samuel, right? So God did have him anointed, but God didn't do that himself, okay? Or you've got uh, Moses at the burning bush. Moses is commanded to go and say what God tells him to say to Pharaoh and the nation of Israel. But now this endorsement from God, God says, this is my son, listen to him. So this is just kind of a, a unique, and, and obviously it would be because Jesus is unique, right? No, none of the prophets ever had an endorsement like this. Um, and notice it's not even Moses or Elijah who commissions Jesus. They are there, but they're not the ones who are speaking to the disciples saying, listen to this man. You know, Moses, after he was done with his ministry, he uh, passed his ministry on to Joshua. And Elijah, when he was done with his ministry, he passed it on to Elisha. But it's God himself who commissions Jesus. And this is really a reaffirmation of something that already happened in Mark back in chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, which is the baptism of Jesus, where God also anoints Christ with the Spirit. So now what we're seeing is, again, the identity of Jesus is just unmistakable. And God uh, says that Jesus is his son. And the next statement is kind of curious, but also powerful. I've been thinking about this a lot since I first looked at this a couple of weeks ago. This is my beloved son. And the command is to listen to him. Um, I think this ties back to chapter 8, verse 38. Remember when Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So Jesus is the word of God. Obviously, he is the word made flesh. 
in order to know this God who is invisible, who speaks from this cloud but does not reveal himself, you know, in some kind of perceptible form, we have to listen to the words of his son. Um, and Jesus says, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. And again, I'll say this, which I said a couple weeks ago, I think you cannot divorce Jesus from his teaching. Right? There's no way to pull apart and say, well, I really like the man Jesus and like his ethical way of living, but I don't really accept what he taught. And we're not told by God the Father to watch him. We're not even told to follow him. Now we can go to verses that do say these kinds of things. But when God speaks to Peter, James, and John in the cloud about his son Jesus, he says, listen to him. Uh, words are very powerful things. We're sort of seeing a resurgence of this in our culture. So like our, our American culture has always thought this, which is why our First Amendment is the freedom of speech, because to be able to say things is powerful. But now we're sort of seeing the flip of that where because people know that words are powerful, they don't want you to be able to say certain words, right? So now words are called violence. Um, certain words are called violence. And there are some things that you shouldn't have the right to say because you might hurt somebody through them. Um, so words are very powerful things. Uh, but the word is even more powerful, right? Man's words have a certain amount of power. God's word has the power so much so that he can say, let there be light and there is let there be animals and there are and then you have this even more incredible thing you have the word made flesh uh jesus god incarnate and obviously john reflects on this in the beginning of his gospel it's worth reading uh chapter one verses well, I mean, you can start in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then we get to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So there's an interesting thing. Maybe you already know this, but that word dwelt there uh, is literally in the Greek tabernacle. Right, so booth sort of among us, right? He came and took a booth among us. And we've seen his glory, literally. Now this is being revealed. John witnessed this. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then you get down to verse 8. Well, I'll just keep reading. John bore witness about him. That's John the Baptist and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So, again, this is a very powerful revelation of who Jesus is. And you get this vocal endorsement of Christ, this is my son, and the command to listen to him. Any thoughts on any of, on any of that? Well, let me beat a dead horse, if you will, because I say this a lot, that um, Jesus also taught us in Matthew chapter 7 that a wise man hears the words and then does them, right? Uh, gentlemen, any of you who are married in this room ever had an argument with your wife about how you might be listening, but you're not listening, right? You might be literally hearing the things that are coming out of my mouth, but you're not paying attention to the meaning or intent behind them. Um, I would imagine that that's an argument that comes up at some point in probably every marriage and I guess maybe that it's that kind of principle right like we're not supposed to just hear the words of Jesus we're supposed to abide by them we're supposed to have confidence in them Jesus just told us if you're ashamed of these things then he'll be ashamed of you um, you're not supposed to just know them you're supposed to abide in them 
You're not supposed to just hear them, you're supposed to follow them. Put them into practice. Um, Luke, Luke's version of the, this has, answers a couple questions that you asked, like what were they talking about? Love it. It tells us what they were talking about. He was talking to Moses and Elijah about his upcoming death, it says. And it sounds like P Peter and James and John were all asleep while they were talking. And they woke up kind of as they're leaving, as they're going away. That would make a lot of sense. Yeah, that, that helps explain why some of this is a little more cryptic here. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. That's good. Love those cross-references. It's helpful. Um, so now we have the mystery answered. What were they talking about? Okay, verse 8. It all ends as suddenly as it began. Uh, yeah, as we were driving over here this morning, kind of early, the whole, like, we were driving on the Casa Gran, you know, by the white barn there, and all to the south is all this fog, right? It was cool. And, like, I mean, I'm just bringing some life experience to the text, but you know how quickly the fog can just, like, it's there, and then all of a sudden it heats up and it's just gone, right? So this moment just passes, and the truth about Jesus is now fully revealed. I think that still they don't uh, understand it, right? We see that in verse 10 because they keep the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now Jesus commands them to keep it to themselves, but I think that still the fullness of this is not understood, right? I don't think it will be understood until the Holy Spirit comes and gives them revelation to understand the meaning. But the endorsement of God the Father is now undeniably clear. And uh, if, the, if, the, if these disciples in particular had failed to listen to him before, I think they bet you know they, they probably feel an urgency to listen to him now, and and that's kind of interesting because actually, remember how Peter rebukes Jesus before when Jesus is talking about his death. Mm -hmm. Well, Jesus talks about his death again here very shortly, and Peter doesn't rebuke him this time. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's going to be in chapter nine, verse thirty. And maybe that's just because Peter learned the lesson the first time, like you don't rebuke Jesus. <laughs> but uh, maybe it's also because these words are bouncing around in his skull. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So it does seem that maybe maybe Peter actually does listen. All right. Uh, verses uh, 9 and 10 as well. Jesus speaks this command to them. Right? Tell no one what you've seen. And they listen, uh, even though, the, again, I don't think they really understand everything that's going on, but they listen to him. And then you have 11 through 13, which I think this section can be a little bit weird, um, a little bit confusing. And like, why does it, why is it here? Why are they asking him this now? And, uh, and like, what, what does this mean with Elijah? Because we just saw Elijah and now Elijah comes back into the text here. So I think that verse 11 does show us that the men that Jesus chose were not highly educated. They weren't the cream of the crop. They would have had a basic Jewish education, but these are not scribes and Pharisees. They don't understand all of the intricacies of the Old Testament and the prophecies about the Messiah. Um, you know, they've heard what the scribes teach, but they don't necessarily understand why it's taught. And Elijah is fresh on their mind because they literally just saw him. And so Jesus answers, you know, they ask the question, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Jesus answers, Elijah does come first to restore all things. So what, what is he talking about there? Well, you'd have to connect it to verse 13. So let's deal with Elijah first, and then we'll deal with the question that Jesus asks there in verse 12. So in verse 12, Jesus says, Elijah does come, verse 13. I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So uh, I believe that Jesus is not referring to a literal, like, it wouldn't be a reincarnation because Elijah didn't die. It would be like a coming again of Elijah. I don't think he's referring to a literal return of Elijah. I think he's talking about the office of prophet 
that Elijah filled that sort of kind of forecast uh, a prophet who would come before the Messiah. That's John the Baptist. Elijah was scorned by the leadership of Israel, Ahab and Jezebel. And he was mistreated by them, even though he was clearly God's prophet. And the same ends up true of John the Baptist, right? You have the you have King Herod who uh, beheads him. And actually he does it at the request of his wife, Herodias, right? So there's some, some overlap there in those two stories. And I think that's what Jesus is referring to. Anybody have a different take on it? There are some people who think that when Jesus uh, says Elijah does come first to restore all things, that actually that's eschatological. So Jesus is talking about the end times and they connect it to the two witnesses that Revelation mentions. I don't personally agree with that interpretation. I think Jesus is just talking about events that are unfolding around his ministry. Okay, but then he asks this question, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? What, what in the world is this question doing here? How does it connect to anything else that's been happening? Anybody have an idea? Um, I think what he's getting at here is in this question, he's basically saying the scribes don't know anything. They don't understand how this all fits, right? Look, they missed Elijah. It was John the Baptist. That was pretty obvious. And Peter, you think that the Son of Man shouldn't suffer. You said that. You know, when Jesus said the Son of Man's going to die, Peter, you were like, no, 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 don't, don't talk like that. The Son of Man, he's a hero. He's, he's a conqueror. He's a man among men, right? Like, so uh, the scribes, I think Jesus is getting at here is like, they don't, they don't even understand the purpose for the Son of Man coming. That he's going to suffer and be treated with contempt. What do these guys know? Religious leaders? No, they're ignorant. I think that's kind of what Jesus is getting at. Again, anybody want to take a different perspective? Okay, so I looked very intensely for some kind of prophecy uh that literally says something like, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So like you have, you know, the prophecy from Daniel and you will see the Son of Man coming in power, um, riding on the clouds, that kind of thing. There's no real clear prophecy that is like a direct one-to-one correlation with what Jesus is saying here. Now, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. But most of the Jews didn't associate this, not even most of the Jews. I'm not aware of any Jewish writings that, is, that connected the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 with the Messiah. They, as far as I understand, these were two different things. Okay? Um, so I think that what Jesus is saying here is maybe not that there's any particular like prophetic quote from the Old Testament, but that um, but that it's clear from like Isaiah 53 and other passages in the Old Testament that the Son of Man is to suffer and the scribes and Pharisees didn't see it. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that very clearly. Um, let me let me try it a different way. Verse 11. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Well, I think that is a direct prophecy from Malachi chapter 4. I think it's very clear. The suffering of the Son of Man is not as clear. Um, but it is testified to there in the Old Testament, just the scribes and the Pharisees missed it. Okay, any questions on that? So this is kind of the nature of prophecy and I think it should make us um, humble as we read 
the prophetic passages of the New Testament. Um, <clears throat> you know, First Thessalonians that talks about the day of the returning of the Lord and Revelation. Maybe some of those passages in Matthew. Is it like chapter 24 and 25? I think we should just approach those passages with some humility because sometimes what prophecy appears is not... It's not that it doesn't unfold exactly as we might expect when it goes down. Does that make sense? Like, I don't know that from Malachi 4, verse 5, that I would have been like, yeah, John the Baptist. Obvious. Um, I don't think that Isaiah 53, if, if it wasn't clear from the New Testament, that you'd be like, yeah, this is the Messiah. All right, well, let's move on unless anybody has any questions. Okay, we're going to now start in verse 14. It says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. So just notice uh, that we just kind of saw in verse 11 that Jesus doesn't have a whole lot of respect for the views of the scribes. He doesn't he doesn't ascribe to them. That's not meant to be a pun. Much um, much wisdom in how they understand the scriptures. Okay, so when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And Jesus asked them, What are you what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And the man said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. All right, so yeah, you have the scribes who Jesus just called ignorant. They're now asserting themselves among the people. Uh, verse 15, it's unclear why the people are amazed. I don't know, other than just that Jesus is kind of this miracle worker. And um, Jesus asked this question, what are you arguing about with them? I think in some ways after the scene we just saw, this is kind of an ironic question. Because here's the man who has the authority to declare all things, the man who knows all things, and yet in humility he asks this question, what, what's the conversation about? And verse 17, the answer is someone from the crowd says, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Um, and uh, here we see the disciples, I think, trying to do the ministry of Jesus kind of in their own power their own strength Jesus already sent them out so he's already kind of commissioned them to do some of this work and they went about and reported doing incredible things in his name casting out demons and now for some reason uh, this man has brought his son and he says to you but the disciples 
took things over because Jesus was up on the mountain and they're ineffective in their ability to help this man. Um, but he has this spirit that makes him mute. Okay, this kind of stood out to me because uh, sometimes you hear from Pentecostal movements or like word of faith movements, this idea of like a spirit of mute. Has, have you guys heard this? You've not heard anything like this? There was one recently that I, somebody sent me a YouTube video and they're like, what do you think of this? And this woman was teaching on the Jezebel spirit, you know, because Jezebel was an evil woman in the Old Testament. And so you have this event that happens with Jezebel and then they extrapolate out of this, this whole theology about spirits and how they act, right? Um... So even just Googling what are some of the other ones, I found this website that had like, you know, 12 spirits for Christians to be on the lookout for. And uh, you had a spirit of depression or a spirit of slumber. So there's some demonic spirit that's a spirit of slumber that goes around putting people to sleep. Uh, the Sandman. The Sandman, right? Uh, I don't by this I think there's a big problem with it that I'll move to in a second but outside of the narrative passages there's no real clear biblical teaching that supports this okay so there are events that happen like this one this is a spirit that makes him mute that's what we're told uh, but that's not even Jesus teaching that's just some dude kind of making an assumption from what he's seeing and I don't I can't find any particular teachings that warn us about you know, a spirit of muteness or a spirit of Jezebel or a spirit of slumber. Okay. Now, uh, there are some references like you have Galatians chapter six, verse one. If anyone is spirit, or I'm sorry. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Or you have 2 Timothy 1.7 that says God has not given us a spirit of fear. Uh, but, I mean, is anybody else aware of any other passages that talk about like a spirit of some kind of particular manifestation of evil? Okay, the, the point I'm making here is I think the Bible can talk about, you know, Spirits like this or having a spirit like this. That's not the same thing as saying there is a spiritual entity that operates under a particular guiding principle to produce this particular kind of evil. Does that make sense? Say again? Okay. Uh, I think that the Bible can say this kid has a spirit that makes him mute uh, or the Bible can tell us to have a spirit of gentleness that's not the same thing as saying that the Bible is teaching that there is a spiritual entity that has a particular kind of sinful guiding principle that does that, that determines everything it does does that make sense? okay so you have in the Old Testament God sending a spirit with evil intent to harass people, but it's just an evil spirit. Um, it's not a spirit of harassment or a spirit of slumber. Does that make sense? Now, here's why this all matters, why I'm even spending time on it. Because I think the problem with this kind of teaching is that it gives an excuse to people, right? You don't have a spirit of slumber, you're just lazy. And stop being lazy. Right? That's on you. That's not some demonic spirit. Now, I think there clearly are spirits that attack, disturb, and assault humans. We're told that our battle is not merely against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of this dark world that we live in. Um, I think that these are just generally evil spirits that are opposed to God, though. And I think when we say, like, you've got a Jezebel spirit, which is like, I don't know, I don't even know what that means. A a, you're a temptress or something like that? Well, then just stop tempting people. So let's not attribute to spirits our own sinful habits and choices. Those are under our direct control and we need to address them. Does that make sense? Would you give the same grace though? Like, I love how you said that. 
the spirit of laziness, you're just lazy, stop being lazy. Would you do the same thing with depression and stuff? Because stop being depressed. Um, I, I would to some degree, because I would say you need to put into practice what the Bible teaches. Set your mind on things above, Colossians 3. Um, you know, take every thought captive. Uh, isn't that Romans 10, I think? So, like, yeah, to some degree, yes. Now, I, w- I would also say that, like, I, I don't I don't want to totally minimize the spiritual world either, yeah, I right? Yeah. I, I don't want to whitewash and turn it all into just modern materialism. So there is some spiritual aspect to it. I would say pray, right? Like, ask God to uh, set you free from that, but also do your part, which is just don't be lazy, right? I wish uh, more people would go spiritually with some of their issues than go medically. Um, because I think we too quickly go, well, I'm depressed, I need some kind of pill, instead of a uh, spiritual force at play, yeah, where prayer would, would answer it. Yeah. And I can say... Especially if you can't measure something. You know, yeah. you can measure low blood sugar. That's not uh, something you can see, feel, touch, and know that these things, but other things, feelings, and yeah, you, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to go back and f- I, I, I probably take a pretty middle ground on this. Um, and the reason is because, man, experientially, dude, I've had some moments where, like, I'm reading the word, I'm being obedient, I'm not, like, living in sin, and I just feel this ridiculous heaviness, and, like, I can't shake it. Like, even though I'm before the Lord in prayer and and I'm continuing to do things rightly, it's just, it just settles on me, right? And so I, I think the Bible says, like, there's a spiritual realm and there's a battle going on there. Um, but but on the, on the other, other side, I can say there are some times where, like, yeah, I look at my depression, experiences where I'm feeling low, and I'm like, it's because I'm not doing what the Bible says, right? And I need to correct that. That's on me. Is that, I don't know. That, yeah, that or we're not content with what God is. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. But I, but I I would agree with you. I think I think that too quickly our culture just says here take a pill. Stats are crazy. How many people are on meds? Crazy, for, for crazy. Logical things. I mean, crazy. And uh, well, that's my, all tied into it, the current rejection of God and everything. Anyway. Yeah. So I mean, why would someone go to prayer? Yeah. In this culture, when yeah. every other answer is no God. Yeah. And no God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now, it, and it's a real thing that you know. Even even Christians, we 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 have like, I call it struggle. You know, when when you're like, one day, there is, I think God allows it to, to to for us to know that He is the higher power, and we have to come to Him every single day. Yeah. As a Christian. So God allows this thing to us, so we have to realize that we're nothing without Him. Yes, I think these things make us mindful of our needfulness, right? That we need Him, right? And when that's I'm, even what Paul says when about. I'm weak, this is strong. Yeah, absolutely, totally. That His grace is sufficient for us. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting too that like you've got. I heard, I heard a pretty good sermon on uh, Elijah, actually, and kind of his, quote-unquote, spiritual depression. He has this incredible moment where he just wrecks shop on the prophets of Baal. Like, God shows up, and then he kills all of them. And then Jezebel threatens him and says, I'm going to kill you. And, uh, and he just takes off running into the wilderness after he saw God take care of him. And what's interesting is God does eventually kind of rebuke him. He's like, what are you doing here, Elijah? But he only does that after he first lets him rest and he feeds him. So that's kind of interesting, right? And and I think this is an important aspect of this too, is like we are body and soul. I think we've talked about this in the class before, but it's, a, it's an idea that I hit on uh, quite a bit. We are a psychosomatic unity. Psyche meaning soul in Greek, soma meaning body. And so these two things go together. Uh, I think that if you're not taking care of your body that's going to have an effect on your mind and your soul and same thing if you're not taking care of your mind and your soul you're going to have maybe some some manifesting issues in your body right um 
So yeah, these, these are complex things. I, w I wouldn't want to oversimplify them, but I think actually the medical field does oversimplify it. You don't feel good, here's a pill, it'll make you feel better. I don't think it works like that. All right, well, we're gonna open up this can of worms a little bit further for a couple more minutes because um, to me, what this, what this boy is suffering from sounds a lot like epilepsy and that hits home for me. My wife had a seizure on Wednesday of this week and she was at Zumba, which is like awful. And uh, I don't know, there's just some really interesting things about this, like lots of things, right? So, and I'm not suggesting that my wife's epilepsy is like demonic or anything, but when she was a kid, she hit her head and then she started having seizures. She became a believer and she stopped having seizures. No seizures for like 10 years. Um, and Jesus even says, uh, verse 25, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Interesting. Then my wife gets pregnant with Karis, our second kid, and she starts having seizures again. And man, some of these seizures have happened, you know, like, sorry that I'm just making this so like personal, but... Uh, the man says in verse 18, it seizes him and throws him down. It's, uh, shoot, where's the part where he says, oh yeah, from childhood, verse 22, it's, it's often cast him into fire and into water, like the most opportune times to try and destroy this kid's life. And like my wife has had two seizures while driving the car. Um, and yet God has been so faithful because like even on Wednesday, the Zumba instructor who was watching the class knew what to do when somebody was having a seizure. So they, she, she actually stopped the class and caught my wife before she fell and like smashed her face on the ground, which she's done before. Um, you know, here, here it happens when I wasn't in Kenya. I wasn't on the other side of the world, right? Some crazy stuff like that. The time when she had the seizure in the car, she literally drove into oncoming traffic on 347 and then out into the desert I don't know if I showed you the picture of the, the giant spike that went through the windshield that missed her by like inches. And the dude who was driving behind her, even though it was in the, it was in the dark. So like we never would have found her, right? Till, I mean, probably till the morning. She could have got out of the car and wandered around in the desert. But the guy behind her was an EMT who followed her in his, in his truck out to the desert, right? So like, I, I'm not suggesting that my wife's epilepsy is some kind of demonic influence. I don't know what it is, but here's God's hand of protection upon her in the midst of it to prevent her demise in these intense moments. Um, but it does bring up the question, like, have we medicalized all of the spiritual things that people deal with? Maybe it is demonic. I'm not saying my wife is, like, possessed by a demon, but, um, you know, maybe there's some spiritual... Yeah, maybe there's some kind of spirit that has been given permission to harass her and God is showing his faithfulness in the midst of that. I don't, I don't know. Anybody else have thoughts on that? But I can tell you, like, when she has a seizure, I, I don't think like this man, like, we need to go to Jesus. I'm like, oh, how's your medication? <laughs> you know, like, did you take your medicine this morning? So... That's kind of interesting too, isn't it, right? That like, we don't even think about it in these terms. And I don't know, maybe we should. Um, all right, well, so verse 18, the disciples are unable to help this man. And uh, Jesus responds in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. It's kind of an interesting lament <coughs> that Jesus seems kind of weary of the unbelief of people around him. Um, particularly the unbelief of the Jews, I think, who had all kinds of reasons to believe in God's power. To me, this also sounds a little bit like Paul in Philippians chapter 1, where he says, 
you know, where he's just kind of reflecting on his longing to escape this world. And yet, think about this. Um, so Jesus, as a man, laments how long he has to put up with people who have persistent unbelief in their heart. But what's the situation for Jesus, God? How patient is our God? How long-suffering is our God? Right? Because he's put up with generation after generation after generation of people with hard-hearted unbelief. And even, you know, we see him lament this in Genesis chapter 6 and then flood the earth. And he still doesn't give up on man, right? Mm -hmm. he, he sort of restarts the project through uh, Noah, knowing full well how it's going to go. Um, you know, we get the picture of Hosea with his wife, who's like a prostitute, who just repeatedly cheats on him. And the whole point of that is like, this is God and his people, that they're faithless. So our God is truly, truly long-suffering. And that's the case with you, too. How many times have you said to God, like, I won't do this again? And you do. And uh, he doesn't cast you out. Um, he's very patient. He never gives up. He does not give up. Yeah, but often time, this is, like, relate to us in our everyday life, you know, we often like, I don't know, it's probably the human nature that when a circumstance is difficult arise, instead of trusting God right away, we kind of like panic and we forgot that there is a big God. Yeah, it's true. Or even worse than forgetting him, blaming him. Also true. Totally. Yeah. So we're not different from his disciples. Yeah. <laughs> No, we're not. We're guilty. Guilty. There's kind of an interesting inversion here as well. Because, I mean, who's re who is Jesus really talking about in verse 19? He speaks very generally, but what is it that elicits this response from him? Who's failure? I think it's the disciples, right? That, that's why he says this. Like, hey, we brought, the man says, I brought my son to your disciples thinking they could help him, and they couldn't. And Jesus has this lament where he says, oh, what a faithless generation, but it was the failure of the disciples that brought this about. Okay, so there's an interesting inversion here. The disciples seem to doubt the power of Jesus, and now Jesus expresses his doubt in the disciples. And yet, they will succeed in the mission he gives them, not because they're so trustworthy and they're faithful and they're stellar and exceptional, but because <laughs> Jesus is who he is. Does that kind of make sense? All right. Um, now, I'll just plant one final seed and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Uh, what is Jesus ultimately going to do to exercise his authority over this demon. Speak, right? Which is what we've been getting at again and again and again in Mark. He's going to just speak. But he doesn't even have to do that to send the spirit into a frothing rage in verse 20. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Uh, it's kind of interesting that on more than one occasion, on, on several occasions, before Jesus even opens his mouth, the demons are pleading with him for mercy. Yep. Right? What do you have to do with us, son of man? We know who you are. Uh, or you got the guy who like reveals himself to be possessed by a demon in the synagogue, right? And he's, he's speaking even before Jesus rebukes him. So the, the, God's word is powerful, but just the sight of Jesus, just the proximity of Jesus is enough to send these spirits packing.
I see it interesting at the end where he said he tells him this can come out by nothing but praying. But yeah. That's not the model he used, which is interesting. And then uh, it seems like there's kind, so there's different there's different ways to exercise. Yeah, talk about spiritual issues in people's lives. I mean, yeah, do we speak to some? Do we pray Prayer. about others? Do we, yeah. Do we, yeah, I didn't quite get to my study of that particular part yet, and I'm curious to look at what some other people have thought about that. Like, do you, does he literally mean like prayer is the only, yeah, the only way to deal with this? Um, I don't know. Maybe, yeah. I mean, probably that would be the most literal reading of the text. Um, it's possible. But, but could he could he also mean that like yeah because this is the only and like how would you even discern that how would you know can he really blame his disciples for not knowing that I don't, I don't know well, well it's yeah. a deaf and dumb spirit maybe that's what the this kind the deaf and dumb kind only come up by praying, by praying and fasting yeah. if you see that there the, but the other ones you can just speak and come out of this girl and other ones you yeah I don't know. yeah I don't I'm not sure either faith. I mean, I would, and that's kind of where I would tend to go is like, were the disciples attempting to do this in their own power versus like the power of God and that comes through prayer? I don't know. I'm going to. Jesus, I know, but you. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, let's close there for today. Um, God, we thank you for revealing that Jesus is indeed your son. And we thank you that he, uh, has been declared to be your son in power. Um, Not merely through something like the transfiguration, but through the power of his word to conquer the forces of darkness and his power to rise from the dead and his power to rule over all things at your right hand. Um, We thank you for that. And I pray that we would indeed listen to your son Jesus and not just like some sneaky people do, the red letter words of the Bible, but all of your word, which points us to Christ. And I pray that we would listen to your commands that come to us through your son in in the flesh and um, that we wouldn't be called a, a faithless people, that you would help our unbelief so that we might be found faithful. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.